You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. And they had infiltrated the church with false teachings and false prophecies concerning the coming of Christ for his people. And this and their teaching was bringing distress and discouragement among the Christians. They had been expecting one thing only to be told they were missing out or even would miss out. So Paul addresses the deceptive teachings that Jesus had already come and they had and were missing him. And so as we will see in this this chapter, chapter 2, Paul's heart for them in these verses is really God's heart for us today. Stand firm in the truth of Christ's glorious return. And in the face of difficult times, in the face of growing adversity, in the face of alienation of faith, stand firm in the truth of Christ's return. So again, if you have your Bibles, however you access God's Word, I will be reading beginning in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll be reading the whole chapter. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat In the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, Because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts turn in full attention to your word. We need the words of life. And those are the words that you speak and have recorded for us. So we pray that we would understand them clearly during this time, Lord. I know it is my voice they may be listening to, but I pray that it is your voice that they ultimately hear. Lord, that you would encourage us in our faith, you would strengthen us in our resolve, that that our doctrine would be in line with your word. So Lord, we open ourselves to the ministry of your spirit through the word even now. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, we're going to spend our time examining what it means to stand firm in the truth of Christ's glorious return. What does it mean, what does it look like to stand firm in the truth of Christ's glorious return? So number one, stand firm in the confidence of Christ's return. Stand firm in the confidence of Christ's return. Verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. As already mentioned, Someone or a group of people in this church was causing emotional distress and theological upheaval in the church. Because of the misinformation and deception, the church was being shaken. It was being alarmed by the teaching that the day of the Lord had come. When we talk about the day of the Lord, we're talking about The day of the Lord in terms of his return. The day of the Lord is referring to Jesus' return. This group that that was teaching or was promoting this understanding that Jesus, the day of the Lord, had already come, they were using different means that that, that Paul references here. Ways to subvert the truth. Talked about... Paul says, if if you hear something contrary to what you were taught, whether it's by spirit, which is really talking about a prophecy... If somebody comes up and says, hey, the Lord impressed and showed to me that, that, this, that the day of the Lord has come, don't listen to that. Or if it was by spoken word, someone who was getting into people's face, someone who was maybe uh, taking over a, a, a small group time and was just trying to push this agenda. Or maybe it was by a letter that this came. There were actually, Paul seems to insinuate that there were people who were writing letters and then claiming that they were actually from Paul. They were writing them themselves, but claiming that the letter came from Paul. They were trying to deceive the church, and it was causing some distress among the believers. It doesn't matter the medium. 
Everything these people were saying concerning the day of the Lord was wrong. And it was causing the Christians to be shaken and alarmed because that had, that is the effect of false teaching. That is the effect of deceptions. That is the effect of lies. It is to distort things so we are unsettled and unsure and no longer confident. So Paul reminds them of what he has already taught them in verse Verse 5, do you not remember that, what, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And that's what so much of teaching really is. It, it's instructing, but then it's also reminding. It's like, hey, remember this. Remember we covered this. Remember this was established and this was laid out before you. This isn't something new. This was something that I already put into play in your life and in your belief system. So Paul had instructed them concerning the coming of the Lord the coming of Jesus Christ, and being gathered together to Him. And so we too must hold fast with confidence to the truth that Christ's coming is coming and that He is going to gather His people to Himself. These people were being robbed of that confidence that, the truth, that this truth brings into to the lives of Christ's people. What an incredible truth it is as we think about this. Jesus is coming, and he will gather his people together to himself. Think about that. Now, we're going to see in a few minutes, in a few moments, that there are a few things that, that are going to happen before Jesus will come. But, but at this point, just allow that truth to fill us with hope and joy. Allow this truth to bring confidence into your life. On the day of the Lord, Jesus will come back, and at that time, He will collect His people from all over the world to Himself. We talked about this already in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where we hear these words. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's the final score. There's a lot that's going to happen in eternity, but ultimately that's the final score. Jesus on the day of the Lord is going to come and he's going to gather his church. He's going to gather his bride. He's going to bring them to himself and we will always be with the Lord. Knowing what is coming gives us confidence for living now. Christ's return for his people makes sense out of our suffering. It makes sense out of our sacrifices. We understand Jesus' call to take up the cross, to deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow him in the context of what we know is coming when Jesus comes again to get his bride. We know that this life is not the final chapter. And we live now in light of what is coming. We can stand firm in confidence knowing Jesus' return will right all the wrongs. He will bring justice. He will bring truth. And he will bring peace. That's where we're all going. That's the final score. There's a lot more in that, but that's ultimately the final score. These verses, actually these first 12 verses, are somewhat a source of different opinions among Christians. 
There are some brothers and sisters who make a distinction between Christ's coming and what is called the rapture of the church or the taking out of the church. Uh, Some talk about the tribulation and when the church is actually taken away. Uh, There's not time to deal with all that now, and I think there are other things more pressing from this. Uh, But just suffice it to say that I don't think that there is a difference between the day of the Lord, between Jesus' second coming and the rapture or the taking away of the church. I think all that unfolds under the day of the Lord. When Christ comes again, he will at that time bring the church to himself. He'll bring all of his people to himself when he comes again. I don't see that as being a a, a separate event. So as you read this, there are brothers and sisters who are faithful in the word and faithful to the gospel who have a different uh, approach to this, and that's okay. And if that is where you are, you're more than welcome to be in this church, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about, about that. But, but we're, as I would understand this, that's one event. Christ comes again. When he comes again, he's going to take, he's going to grab his people, and we will forever be with the Lord from then on. I just don't want us to lose what is important here by focusing on arguments over different interpretations of the tribulation or the millennium. Christ is coming. That's our confidence. How it works out, we can talk about that. Also, let's not be led astray by those who would try to predict when Jesus is coming. Ever so often you hear that, people will come up and they'll put a date on it. When Terry and I got married in 1987, yes, I'm that old, um, but Terry isn't. Um, there was a book that came out the end of that year by the title, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. It was written by a guy who was a former NASA rocket engineer who had turned prophecy teacher. Obviously, this was a smart guy. He used his millennial approach as a grid and predicted that Jesus would return to rapturous church sometime during the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah in 1988, which would be from sunset September 11th to sunset September the 13th. And before those dates, the World Bible Society was the one that actually printed this out, and they printed 3.2 million copies, and they sent it out to every pastor in the United States that they could get an address for. So imagine what happens when the September prediction failed. Oh, I got it wrong. It's actually October, he said. Then when that didn't happen, he was undaunted. He kept saying, but the evidence is just so clear for this. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard and keep awake. Again, that's the final line, bottom line for us in all this. Wherever you may fall on these issues, please know more than anything that the confidence and joy of the Christian is in the return of Christ whenever, however that may happen. Our confidence isn't in knowing exactly how it unfolds. Our confidence certainly isn't in knowing the day Jesus returns. Our confidence, again, is that he's returning. He's coming back for us, family. He's coming back for his people. How can that not change every part of our life? That the one who created us and the one who redeemed us is the one who's coming to restore us fully. 
You know, let's include that. This is, I love this church. It is the most encouraging church I've ever been part of. I was struggling with some, uh, just some sickness and illness in the last month and some discouragement that was coming off of that. And I had my brothers in the faith, they were just so consistent to encourage me in the Lord, to remind me of of God's faithfulness, to remind me of what it is that the Lord uh, had done for me and his promises to me. Let's include this as part of our encouragement. Hey, remember the Lord's coming. He's coming for us. Let your confidence be in that. He is coming for us. Let's not listen to all these other things that would bring distress, that would shake us, that would alarm us. Let's just keep our focus on the fact that Jesus is coming for us as his people. Don't lose heart. Don't give in to sin. Don't give up the faith. Keep going forward in the power of the Lord. We live our lives knowing he will come again. So we stand firm in the confidence of Christ's return. Second, we also stand firm knowing the evil we may face. We stand firm in the face of evil that's coming. Verses 3 through 5. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So before Christ's return, there are some things that need to happen, Paul tells us. And apparently he had instructed them in this as well. And that's what he's trying to remind them because he told them this when he was with them. And someone was coming along saying, no, Christ's return has already come. And Paul's saying, no, none of this has happened. Before Christ returns, there are some difficult times that must come. First, there is a rebellion and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. This will not be a good time for the followers of Christ. It won't be a good time for humanity in general, but it will not be a good time for the followers of Christ. Paul is picking up on what Jesus said about his return. Actually, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 here, it seems to track well with what Jesus said in Mark 13. So I want to read some of that just so that we see this is how Jesus talked about his return. And Paul is just pretty much saying the same kinds of things. Mark chapter 13, verse 3, and as he sat, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. We can can find all of these things happening now. Jesus is pointing to a difficult time of many difficult things happening in our world before his return. Wars and rumors of wars. Right? I mean, we're, we're living in that. Nations rising up against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. We hear of earthquakes daily, famines that are going on. But he just says all of these are birth pains. Now, I've never had a contraction in my life, but I hear they hurt. When Terry was in labor, I think it was with our daughter, our daughter, 
they had a monitor hooked up to her, and I could see when a uh, contraction would come. I, could, I made the mistake of saying, well, that contraction didn't look too bad. She loves me anyway, and we got through that. But contractions hurt. They are painful, but they are also going towards something good. The birth of a of new life. And that's what Jesus is saying here. These things are hard. These things are painful. These things are, but they're going towards something good. They're going towards my return. Jesus continues in, in Mark 13. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise, up, uh, rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." This could be seen as this period of rebellion, a hard time for Christians as we follow the Lord. As he says here, you're going to be hated for my namesake. You're going to be hated simply because you follow me. You're going to be hated because you say, I belong to Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. I believe in Jesus. This is the rebellion that must come. Paul then says this, with that rebellion, there is coming a man who is characterized by lawlessness. His whole existence is contrary to the law and ways of God. That's why the word lawless is used there. And Paul tells us he is the son of destruction. That could mean a couple things. It probably means both these things, meaning he will bring destruction in his path and his end will be his destruction as well. And Paul says this about the man. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is a, this is a man with a lot of hubris, who's arrogant, narcissism out the, out, you know, through the roof kind of thing. He takes a high place above every religion, above every, above every object of worship, Everything and everyone that anyone on earth might believe or trust in, he exalts himself over them and says they all bow down to him. He is God over all things. It says he takes his seat in the temple. This could be the literal temple. There's some discussion about that. It could be a figurative temple. But his aim ultimately is to proclaim himself God. This is a bad man who will force himself into a position of power and influence. And he will perform all sorts of wondrous but deceptive acts. It says in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Number one, Satan is behind us. Satan is the one who's empowering. Satan is the one who's doing this. Uh, but he is one who, the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders. And people are going to believe him because of his display of power and signs. But then Paul tells us this. That man of lawlessness has not been revealed yet. 
Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may reveal it in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So the lawless one is being restrained. He was being restrained in Paul's time. In Paul's time, we would continue to understand that the lawless one has been restrained. We are not told who or how he is being restrained. But he is being held back under the plan of God. And we have to understand that. And at a certain time, the lawless one will no longer be restrained. He will be free to act according to the godless, wicked, lawless character that fills him. And we are also told that the end, we're also told about the end of the lawless one. He will ultimately be defeated by the very breath of Christ when he returns. The lawless one whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, nothing by the appearance of his coming. I mean, how wonderful is this? I mean, this is hard times, but this fight isn't our fight. We're not the one who overthrows the lawless one. Just like we weren't the one who overthrew Satan. Just like we're the one who didn't overthrow death. Just like we're not the ones who overthrew sin. Jesus is fighting this fight, and he is going to come and deliver with authority and power against the lawless one when he is revealed. He will be completely destroyed. So we stand firm in the face of coming evil because we know Christ will defeat the evil. We stand firm in the face of coming evil because we know that even evil serves God's purpose and accomplishes his will. I mean, notice how all this is under the control of God. The lawless one is being restrained. We don't know if that's by the church or by a person or by government. There's all kinds of discussion around that. But we know it's under the plan of God. It's under the providence of God. God is restraining him through whatever means God is using. When Christ comes again, he will destroy the lawless one with his breath. And in verse 11, we are going to see that God is going to send a strong delusion to people who refuse to love the truth of Christ and the gospel. Evil cannot thwart God. He overcomes it and turns it to serve his will. It is, at, it is God who is at work in all this. And we are to stand firm and not have our hearts and minds disturbed by the evil actions because we know God is at work. God is over this. God is in control. We like the word sovereign. He is sovereign over all things. We must know this now with certainty to prepare ourselves for that time should we live through these events. But it's not just these future events that do have to come with this rebellion and the lawless one. Paul does say in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's lawlessness already around. Paul is saying, we experience lawlessness all the time. Although Paul anticipates the rise of a particular figure who will embody deceit and opposition to God, he knows that those same forces of deception and lawlessness are already prevalent in that society, just like they're prevalent in our culture today and around the world. The church in Thessalonica had experienced such evil in the persecution and opposition that, they had, that had come against them. They understood what Paul was saying here. But they're saying something even worse is going to come. 
The lawless man may not be revealed yet, but lawlessness abounds. It doesn't take the presence of this lawless one for people to throw off and reject the law and will and ways of God. Trust in technology. Trust in medical advances. Trust in scientific discoveries have replaced trust in God. We see that in our world today. Belief in self has usurped belief in God. We have become the epitome of what Paul says in Romans 1, where we are worshiping the creation instead of the creator. No matter the time, whether there is a general lawlessness or if the lawless one himself comes, the church continues on its mission. It continues doing what Jesus commissioned it to do, what Jesus sent His Spirit within them to empower the church to do. The church is always on mission, no matter how evil it may be around us. We are always on mission to proclaim the truth that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Our mission field is always in the context of lawlessness. So don't expect anything other than that. This is why people need Christ. And there's a serious warning in here. In verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. People who continue in their refusal to love the truth concerning Christ and the gospel, they will be susceptible to the strong delusion that God will send. And the purpose of this delusion is to lead those further into error, further into lies, bringing greater darkness and despair and condemnation on themselves. So listen, please hear this. This text requires this question be asked. Are you living a lawless life where you love unrighteousness and don't love the truth? Does that describe you? Have you heard the truth of God's great love for you? Have you heard of your moral guilt before God that deserves eternal condemnation? Have you heard of Christ's death in your place for your sin? Have you heard of the hope of Christ's resurrection? Have you heard that Jesus is coming again and yet you continue in unbelief? Hear the warning of this passage. A delusion is coming that people will believe the exact opposite of what is true. They will believe what is wrong is right and what is right is wrong. And this passage tells us something else. The truth is for so many people, they reject Christ not because they don't believe in Him, but because they want to persist in their sin. They don't want to give up what they want. They want what they want, or as Paul said, they did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. People love darkness rather than light. But listen, the light of God is here shining on you this morning. Hear the truth. People love their ungodliness and therefore reject the truth of the gospel. Hear the love and mercy of God for you this morning. Leave your sin behind. Turn in faith to Christ. He is Lord. He is Savior. And He's coming again. He's coming to gather His people. 
He is coming to judge the living and the dead and to restore all things to their glorious person. Be part of the glorious restoration. Don't be part of the strong delusion. Here's how you do this. Tells us in Romans, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It's just that simple. Stand firm in the confidence of Christ's coming. Stand firm in the face of coming evil. And then quickly, this last point. Stand firm in God who has chosen you. Verses 13, 14, and 15. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our chosen letter, or by our, our letter. God chose us. We are to give thanks for that. I, I've had so many conversations over the years with people who are offended when we talk about God's chosen, choosing us or the election of God for his people. Everywhere in Scripture, everywhere in Scripture where we are told about the election of God for His people, it is a thing of rejoicing and thanksgiving. Because if He doesn't come after us, we're certainly not going after Him. If He doesn't save us, we're not getting there on our own. The good news is that He comes after us. And He saves through the means of preaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ. That is how people are born. When they hear the truth, they repent and believe and trust and follow Christ. God, that's how God saves. In this passage, we are told He chose us because He loved us. He doesn't love us because He chose us. God doesn't reluctantly love us because He chose us. He chose us because He abundantly loves us. We are the beloved by the Lord. His thoughts are for us. His affections are great for us. His delight is in us. And love, He is sanctifying us by His Spirit and through the truth. Why is He doing this? Verse 14, so we may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus. Wait, wait a minute, what did He just say? That we may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus? We somehow share the glory of the Lord Jesus? It isn't our glory. We're not the ones generating it. We aren't the source of it. And we certainly don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. Yet, he's saying we may obtain the glory of our Savior Jesus. He intends that we share in that. You know, in a small way, it's like when the Spurs won an NBA championship. And I remember I was actually living in, in, in New York at the time, but watching the river parade and the hundreds of thousands of people that line that, cheering they were sharing in the glory of that team in a sense. They were excited and joyful. Did they earn it? Did they, were they the ones playing basketball? No, but they were connected to that team. And it's the same kind of thing. It's not what we're doing. It's what Christ is doing. But we share in that glory. We glory in Christ. We are, we are joyful because of who he is and what he has done. Stand firm in the God who has chosen you and who's providing all of this for you that we would share in his glory. And let me, let me finish with this. There's one more here. We are, 
there's more to standing firm, verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Again, our Lord Jesus and God our Father loves us. Our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father gave us eternal hope. Our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father provides us a good hope through grace. Our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father comforts our hearts. Our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father establishes us in every good work and word. Listen, we find in these verses the only means by which we can stand firm. It is because God is doing this in our lives. We may want to stand firm, but unless God is energizing that, it's not going to happen. He is at work in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It is the consistent testimony of Scripture that grace means God is working in us what we need, but we can't provide. And here he is again providing all of this. Paul wanted to replace the shakenness and alarm caught by the misinformation and deceit He wanted it replaced with knowledge that Jesus himself and God their Father, filled with love, will provide eternal comfort and good hope through his grace. And in that, he will establish them in every good work and word. This is what Christ's coming and gathering his people to himself will produce. God is doing this work. This is grace on display. This is the normal Christian life. God at work accomplishing in, what, in us what he has decreed for us. Let's, let's just thank God for that. Lord, I, I want to stand firm. Thank you that you're working that in my... Help me to stand firm in the face of, of misinformation, in the face of deceptions, in the face of evil. Let me stand firm knowing that you have chosen me in Christ, that you've had mercy on me. Stand firm in the confidence of Christ's return. Stand firm in the face of coming evil. Stand firm in the God who has chosen you. Let's pray together.